Well, we're back. (laughs) So last week we talked about living a life worthy of the Lord. Our lives are meant to be lived for him, and that means a life of goodness, righteousness, and truth, a life of love and joy and peace. That's our goal. And the passage we're going to talk about today continues with Paul's letter to the Colossians. He tells us about the centerpiece of Christianity, and he outlines the mystery of our faith. And the centerpiece of our faith are the two pillars of creation and redemption, or reconciliation. We were made by God, and we are redeemed by God, and that's what I want you to take home today, okay? The first section of this passage is a description of Jesus, what he has done, and what he continues to do what he will do for us in the future. And it's so poetic that many biblical scholars think that this was an early hymn of the church. So let's just start. In Colossians 1, verse 15, which you heard Amy read a slightly different version of, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Well, right there, that's quite powerful. Paul is saying in so many words, Jesus is God. He is God made visible. Like an image in a mirror reflects a person, Jesus reflects God's glory in a form that we can see. But more than an image, he is the real, true manifestation of God. He reveals God. In 2 Corinthians Verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says that we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I know that to some skeptics it sounds kind of ridiculous that a human being could actually be God, at least in any way that differs from how all of us are created in the image of God and we're all children of God. But God wants us to know him. And how else could we see God and live? Last week I suggested that we see ourselves as God-pleasers, the way our dogs are people-pleasers. Well, I am not just a dog mom. I have other pets. Well, they're not exactly pets. They're worms. (laughs) I feed my garbage to worms, yes. Every few days or so I open the top of their little bin. I'm serious. I have worms. And I, I I dig in the dirt and I throw in old veggies and I... Um, coffee grounds, stuff like that, and I cover the dirt back over this mess, this slimy mess, and I put the lid back down, and I imagine my worms are delighted at my providence and my generosity, but perhaps not. If I wanted my worms to get to know me, what could I do to reveal myself? Could I use ESP and, (laughs) you know, transfer my self into their brains? Well, worms don't even have eyes. They do have little teeny tiny brains, but they don't have eyes. So they couldn't, if they got me in their brain, they would be destroyed by my glory, such as it is. So I would have to do something very odd. I would have to become a worm and communicate in worm-like ways. And that's really what Jesus did. He came to communicate to us in human-like ways by becoming a human. In John chapter 1, verse 18, the beloved disciple says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. 
So Paul is telling the Colossians that they don't need any supplementary information to understand God more fully. And they were struggling with this because they had false teachers who said they needed to know something more. Christ alone bridges the gulf between heaven and earth. Humans don't need any other intermediate beings to interpret God for them. And if you're wondering what the firstborn overall creation means here, it doesn't mean that Jesus was the first thing that God made. It just means that he has all the rights and privileges, the preeminence, the supremacy of the eldest son in Paul's culture at that time. He is honored. Christ is his father's representative. He's his heir. And he has management of the whole divine household, which is to say all of creation. He is Lord over everything. Which is what Paul goes on to say. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. Everything, even the invisible supernatural stuff like power, was made by Jesus and made for him. The spiritual powers of this world only hold their seats of power in trust. Those who are in Christ do not need to revere them or fear them or appease them. They belong to Jesus, too. Creation is for Christ in the sense that he is the end for which all things exist. All things are meant to serve his will and contribute to his glory. But how do we see Jesus as creator? I just said he was human, right? Well, he is the exact same being as the Father. We believe in one God. Remember, God spoke the universe into being. God said, let there be light. God said, let the lands produce vegetation. God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vaults of the sky. The word was God's first work, and that was Jesus. In John 1.1, John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Just as you own and you are in fact, you are in fact your own actions, the word is God. And in fact, here's what Jesus prayed at the end of his life, near the end of his life, in John 17, or yes, John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. I have brought your glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So never let anyone tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. John, the beloved disciple, tells us otherwise, and John was actually there. So going back to Colossians, in verse 17, Paul says, He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus existed before creation. He made us. He continues to keep everything going, including us. So I'm going to take you back to high school. Sorry. In your high school science class, you learned about atoms, the smallest building blocks of elements, right? An atom has a teeny tiny little nucleus, and then it has even tinier electrons going around it. The empty space between that cloud of electrons and and the nucleus is empty space. It's a vacuum. 
That's the simple description. So picture this. Picture this pulpit a billion times larger so that each individual atom is like the size of a melon, say. You would see all that space. There'd be a ton of space, more space than there would be matter, right? In fact, that nucleus would still be invisible to you, even if it were a billion times bigger. But electrons orbit the center of an atom, but not like, not like you were taught, maybe. I was taught. That is sort of like the planets orbiting the sun. No, they're in a weird patterns, individual patterns. Each electron has its own pattern, and it's like dancing, which I think is kind of beautiful. It's like ballroom dancing. They each have their own individual steps. Some of them are slow and gentle like a waltz, and some of them are highly energetic like a lindy hop. But only one atom can, one, I'm sorry, electron, can do that particular step at a time. They can't be in their own paths. So that explains actually why this pulpit feels solid to me. It's the dance of the electrons. It's all that energy. It would take more energy than I have in my muscles to pull, push through all of those electrons. My finger electrons and my pulpit electrons cannot be through, go through. It's Jesus holding it together. How crazy is that? If Jesus decided not to hold this pulpit together, I could put my hands right through it. But we have dancing electrons. So that's a long way of saying that Jesus provides all that energy. The pulpit is more energetic than it looks. If you believe God created the universe, you believe he's holding it together. In him, all things hold together. Well, Paul goes on to give us more of what Jesus has been doing. Jesus is now the head of the body, the church. Jesus' body here on earth is now the church, and we are the way he chooses to get things done in the world. The union that exists between Christ and his people is so intimate and so real. It's like your own head and your own body. It's one living unit. We would be incomplete without our heads, right? We would be incomplete if we were just heads and no body. The word for head obviously means cabeza, but more figuratively, it's about authority. Jesus is the head guy. He's the one who decides what the church ought to do. We need to remember that the church exists not to satisfy itself, but to fulfill the purposes of Jesus Christ. Now, you know that bodies are designed to want to survive, even without a mind. Hunger and thirst, they don't come from your mind or your imagination, but from the needs of the body. But you know that that's not what your body is for, not just simply for survival, or there'd be no question of having a living will, saying, please don't keep me on life support if my brain is dead and there's no hope for recovery. So... We are involved with Christ in every way. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. So again, firstborn isn't literally the firstborn. It's the one who has preeminence. He has first place because he is God in the flesh who died and rose again. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness. Jesus is 100% God. Christ perfectly exhibits God's spirit, his word, his wisdom, and his glory. And here comes the really good news. 
And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. So Jesus' job is reconciliation and peacemaking, and he did it through his death. When Christ died on the cross, he made peace possible between God and human beings. Can you imagine a more wonderful outcome than that? Peace with God. And he makes peace through his blood shed on the cross. This really is the climax of what Paul is saying in terms of who Jesus is. God turned murder and an instrument of death and torture into a sacrifice that brings life and peace. So far in this passage, Paul has described these two pillars that are the foundation of our faith, creation and reconciliation or redemption. I like to see it, and this is not original with me, as the pillars of the majestic Golden Gate Bridge. We have creation and we have redemption. And the deck of the bridge is supported by those two pillars through steel cables, right? The bridge, of course, is Jesus. Everything hinges on those two pillars. Never forget, God made us and God redeemed us. Paul continues to get more specific. And you who were once estranged, isolated, lonely, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his fleshly or his physical body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. This reconciliation and peacemaking even works for us. We were once estranged. We are now reconciled, and in the future, we will be presented holy and blameless and irreproachable before God. Just FYI, in case you hadn't noticed, there has never been, nor will there ever be, a Christian life that is blameless in actual conduct. But our identification with Christ is such that his righteousness and his standing before God are ours. It can't be done by our own efforts, but we can be transformed by faith and stand blameless before God and be at peace with him. And in verse 23, Paul tells us our part in all of this, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. So this is how we can be at peace with God, by remaining faithful and remembering the hope that has been proclaimed. We should not be complacent, but we can. We can be grateful, and we can be faithful. The most significant element in our Christian life is faithfulness to God. In the days we now live in, things are crazy. I think you may have noticed that. There are wars, there are famines, there is economic collapse all over the world, there are natural disasters, and in our own lives, awful things can happen. Being faithful to God gives us great peace and assurance that we will be brought through. He has promised us blessing and the reward of eternal life in heaven. Jesus said in John 6.39 that it is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he gave me, but raise them up in the last day. Jesus promised that. One day he will present you to his Father in heaven, and until then, he will see you along the way. He will see you through. And I say, praise God, 
Praise God for the promise he gives you for your future with him in heaven and for the protection and companionship that is yours now as you walk in faith. So, going on. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Well, I've been painting a pretty happy and indeed joyful picture of peace with God. That doesn't mean a life without sadness or disappointment or even suffering. Suffering, however, does not preclude joy. Paul knows his part of the mission, and even though it causes him suffering to complete it, he rejoices in it. Paul's imprisonment had come as a result of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. His sufferings even contribute to our well-being, for had he not been imprisoned, he might not have written this letter and we would not have this message. When Paul says he's completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, he's not implying that Jesus came close to fulfilling his mission but failed. Jesus did everything necessary. But someone like Paul was also necessary in order to carry the good news to the Colossians, to the lost world, and to us. In fact, the church, even today, is built by acts of self-denial in Christ's servants. We continue the work that Jesus began. Verse 25 goes on, I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, there it is again, the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. Well, everyone loves a mystery, and that word was very popular in Paul's day. There were mystery religions where pagans would need to um, get some secret knowledge in order to feel like they were really on the right path. And that secret knowledge was usually available for a fee. Well, that's a surprise. So, um, he, our... Um, Paul says, sorry, that the Christian mystery is not secret knowledge for a few. It's a revelation of divine truths. Once hidden, now openly proclaimed and freely given. It's like he's saying, you want to know a secret? I've got a secret, and you've got the answer, and you've got the answer, and you, and you, and you. He's like Oprah. It's great. So, what is this revelation? What is the answer to the mystery? I have you all on the edge of your chairs, right? To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, it has been revealed that even Gentiles, even us, we can be reconciled to God. That is incredibly great news. Christ's riches are an inexhaustible treasure of goodness, glory, wisdom, peace, all that good stuff. Paul is amazed at the conversion of these pagan people and they're being drawn into the one body of Christ. And the content of the mystery is Christ in you, an inner experience of the indwelling Christ, our hope of glory, hope of glory, a joyous expectation that one day we will be glorified in heaven. The truth is that Christ living in us is what gives us the assurance, the certainty of foundation, of salvation. 
It is he whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul preached Jesus so that everyone would become Jesus' follower, not just the elite, as the false teachers to the Colossians would teach. God provides salvation for anyone, anyone who will take it. God doesn't require that we learn some hidden secrets or obtain certain inside information to accept Christ's message and enjoy eternal life. And Paul doesn't see Christianity as some of us do, like a collection of rules and regulations, a lot of thou shalt nots. I know people who say, I can't become a Christian because I'll have to give up whatever. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a living person who's the fulfillment of the deepest hopes of humankind and the source of new life for all of his people. And that person, as I talked about last week, he wants to be in close relationship with us. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Paul does his work, he fulfills his mission with everything he has, including the God-given energy of Jesus. So, remember, creation, reconciliation, redemption, those are the two great works of God through Jesus Christ. This is what we need to believe to call ourselves Christians. It's not a mystery. It's not a secret. God revealed everything through Jesus Saving faith is persevering and enduring faith anchored in hope. True faith and hope are no secret, and they're found nowhere else than in Christ. Remember, we're the ones who cause the distance between God and ourselves, and it's Jesus who builds the bridge. Amen.